0: Today is June 5th, 2013, and my guest is Morris Fiorina, the Wendt Family Professor of Political Science at Stanford University and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He is the author of numerous books and articles, including Culture War, The Myth of Polarized America, co-authored with Samuel Abrams and Jeremy Pope. He is a member of the National Academy of Sciences. Mo, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Good to be here. Our topic for today is a recent article you wrote for The American Interest titled America's Missing Moderates, Hiding in Plain Sight. And we may also touch on some of the issues in your book, Culture War. I recommend the article in the book very much. Let's start with some 21st century political history. The Republicans got off to a great start at the beginning of the 21st century, but then everything changed. Tell us what happened. Okay, that's correct. Uh, the 2000 election gave the Republicans full control of the
1: president, presidency in both houses of Congress, uh, for the first time since Eisenhower in 1952. And that's what got all the publicity. But it was also one of the very few instances of unified government from either party in the last half century. But essentially, after the, uh, the Kennedy Johnson years, we had a, a large a generation basically of divided government. Uh, where one party would control the presidency, but not both chambers of Congress. And, uh, this continued, uh, through the 2004 to 2006 election, and everything came apart in 2006. And we went from unified Republican government in 2004 to a Republican headed divided government in 2006 to a unified Democratic government in 2008 to a Democratic headed divided government with split control of Congress in 2010. And there were four distinct patterns here of majority control of our public institutions, and I wondered how, how unusual or common that was in American history. And it turned out you have to go entirely through the 20th century back to the 19th century to see anything like this. In the period 1886 to 1894, we had five distinct patterns. of of different control, different majority control of institutions. So we're living in an era that's historically very unusual where uh, basically both parties compete for control of all three elective institutions.
0: And 2012 could have tied that streak going back to the 19th century had one of the three outcomes changed, Correct.
1: Yes, correct. I From a professional standpoint, I was rooting for <laughs> for that. Uh, if uh, if Obama were reelected for control of Congress to flip, or if Romney were elected for there to be split control, because that would have tied us with the historical record. In fact, if you go back to, I believe it's eighteen eighty four, uh, or no, it's eighteen eighty eight. The um, the Democrats actually won the popular vote. But Grover Cleveland was counted out in the electoral college, so technically, um,
0: we actually uh, tied that period if you want to get really technical about the, uh, the electoral college in terms of popular support. so t- just summa- yes. summarize uh-huh. the phenomenon you're you're talking about. It's not just that there's divided government, it's the ex- explain what was so unusual about these last four elections the excuse <laughs> me oh, oh, it's we're talking about four, six, eight, and ten, correct. Correct. And you're right. It's not just that the government is divided. We
1: had divided government all through from 1968 on to 2000. We had divided government more often than not. But it had a very predictable pattern. Republicans would win the presidency and the Democrats would hold the Congress. And uh, we had an exception when the Democrats lost the Senate in the early Reagan years. But what we've had recently is just pandemonium. Basically, this article uh, you mentioned titled America's Missing Moderates, I originally titled it, uh, an era of electoral instability to point to the uh, what, the era we're in, but they wanted to, uh, to emphasize moderates and so they changed the title but yeah what's what's different now is we are in any given election we could have unified Republican government unified democratic government divided government with either party in control split control it's almost anything goes uh, one of my colleagues uh, said we're in a period of we're in the postmodern party system where anything is possible uh,
0: and and there are some parallels between that earlier 19th century period and this period that you noted. I don't know if it's significant that there are these parallels, but it's interesting.
1: Yes. Uh, I think the, the fact that the parallels are 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 there is is actually less fundamental than the fact that there are large-scale social and economic changes taking place during both periods. That uh, when political historians study American electoral history – uh, they, they identify long periods of uh, essentially stability, that the parties are roughly one is majority, one is minority. They tend to fight over the same issues. And then there are often transitional periods, and, and or in the case of the late 19th century and today, long periods of instability and what i pointed out in the late 19th century we had a series of sweeping social and economic developments that are uh, repeated today and i i if you'd like me to go into those yeah, uh, one obvious do. one is okay one obvious one is immigration that of course the 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 era of mass immigration was even greater in the late 19th century to the turn of the century than it is today but again we've had the resumption of large scale immigration since the changes in the laws of the 1960s uh, it was a period of economic transition. Uh, then it was a period going, we're going from agricultural to an industrial economy. Now we're going from, I, uh, people call it different things, from an industrial to a post-industrial to a communications to an informational, uh, whatever, but there are big economic changes taking place. Uh, that was an era of globalization. Uh, globalization is nothing new. Uh, at that point it was British finance, uh, building a great deal of the American industrial base. Uh, it was American exports developing. We became, uh, began to export all our agricultural and later industrial, uh, production. Uh, just as we were, um, we were having an era of, um, Tremendous globalization today. It was a period of internal population movements. Uh, the farms were people leaving the rural lifestyle and moving to the big cities. Uh, in the present era, we've had people moving from the frost belt to the sun belt for basically four to five decades now, changing the geographic, uh, the nature of the economy as well as political power. And, uh, and finally, it was a period of, um, uh, internal, let's see, internal population movement, I guess. Well, <laughs> I forget. Were put, There's put something say, there something else. It doesn't of, matter. There are a number of parallels. And what these kinds of things do is, first of all, they throw up new issues and new problems. And it's not clear how to solve these things necessarily, and so people founder around. to they split old coalitions. Um, you know, immigration today, for example, you know, we tend to think simplistically of Republicans being anti-immigration and Democrats being pro-immigration, but it's obviously a lot more complicated. There's a there's a libertarian wing of the Republican Party which would uh, would like more immigration, especially uh, skilled uh, immigrants at the same time democrats realize that uh... especially low-skilled immigrants uh, compete with and lower the wages of uh, the democratic base so these these new issues create tensions the cities, farms south, north, etc and uh, I think it 's basically um, basically the instability reflects the fact that neither party can get a total handle on uh, this new complex of issues and they can't they just basically can 't come up with a, a majority vision, a, a vision that will capture the country and end the period of instability. Um, the late nineteenth century period ended in eighteen ninety six when the McKinley Republicans. Uh, convinced the country that a an industrial uh, the industry was the wave of the future they united the uh, urban working class with the industrial class and um, agriculture was left behind uh, for a while and we haven 't we nobody 's won yet basically until somebody wins decisively and governs in a satisfactory faction fashion I think we 're going to continue to flounder around politically
0: so one of the ways that you might interpret this instability is to conclude that the electorate is unstable, that people can't decide whether Republicans have better ideas, than Democrats, whether they need – they want a president as a Republican, a president is a Democrat, and that this national instability at the, at the electoral level is reflecting the instability of the electorate itself. And you reject that argument. Why? Well, no, I accept the argument in the sense that people are not
1: convinced that either party has the answers, but my my larger point is the electorate itself hasn't changed. That If you go back and you look at people's partisan inclinations, look at their ideological position taking, look at their positions on the issues, you would have a hard time differentiating the 1970s from the present era, that if I didn't label the tables, uh, you'd say, well, I don't know which era that comes from. But what's happening is the choices are different and in particular they're not confident that either party has the answers uh they have uh, i mean just look at these last several elections in which the the bush republicans were just you know. Totally rejected in 2006 and 2008 congressional Republicans. Then we have the great shellacking of 2010 when the congressional Democrats were rejected. So it's not that people are changing their minds, their positions, their preferences. They are looking at the alternatives they're offered and the performance of the parties, and they are simply uh, reacting that no one has convinced them, no one has satisfied them yet.
0: Let's go back, though, to this pattern of when you, you made a claim that I think most people would find very hard to believe, but I've read the paper and looked at the charts, so I'm, I'm – I lean your way, which is – the claim is that if you went back 40, 50 years, there's been very little change in either partisanship or ideology. So give us some rough numbers for how people identify uh, both now and then. Sure. The, um, the party identification
1: has been essentially stable since about the, um, the early to mid-70s. The Democrats used to be the majority party, but that, that went away in the 1960s with all the tumult and the problems there. But since that time, basically, you've had the Democrats and the independents sort of fighting for privacy. Democrats, 35 to 40 percent of the population. These are self-identified labels by the way we ask people in surveys do you think of yourself as a republican a democrat an independent or what and uh, the Democrats, 35 to 40. Republicans have never cracked uh, basically about 30 uh, percent since the Eisenhower era. They are definitely the minority. Uh, and the, 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 the Democrats have a plurality. The independents uh, are close to that as well. And then the, the minority Republicans. If you look at ideology, it's uh, even more stable. That Essentially, the liberal label has never been very popular in the United States. And there are typically 20 to 25 percent of the country that classify themselves as liberals. Conservatives are typically 35% or so, and the moderate label, moderate, middle of the road, tends to be the, or more often than not, the uh, plurality position with 35 to 40% of the population. Now, it needs to be said that, that ordinary people don't mean by these, by these terms, especially conservative, what movement conservatives and political activists uh, think of as these terms, that a person could call themselves a conservative and yet have uh, liberal positions on various issues. They're not nearly as consistent Interviews on specific issues as activists and commentators and journalists uh, are uh, but anyway the, the the big difference the big change that many people mistake uh, for a changing electorate is that the relationships among these variables has uh, has clarified that in the 1960s there were lots of conservative Democrats especially in the south there are many moderate Democrats. Uh, there were at that same time lots of liberal Republicans, the Rockefeller wing of the party, and li- very liberal people like like Jake Javits, the senator from New York. There was also a big moderate wing. Now, what's happened is conservatives have essentially been driven out of the Democratic Party, or have left, or have died out uh, the, uh, on the Republican Party. Liberals have been driven out, or have. Uh, left or have died out, and uh, the moderates basically don't have a home in either party. That the Democratic Party is now clearly a liberal party, the Republican Party is clearly a conservative party. Moderates, minority in both, and unpopular in both. But the fact is, they're the actual numbers of liberals or percentages of liberals, moderates, and conservatives, Republicans, Democrats, and Independents have essentially not changed in a generation. It's just the uh, people are now in the right parties, uh, which. Are, basically ideologically speaking, which is what's contributing to the partisan warfare of today.
0: So that raises the obvious question. Why are the parties more polarized? So the, the punchline here, if I understand it correctly, is that the electorate is not any more polarized or less polarized than it was uh, 40, 50 years ago. But the parties they, that they have to choose from are uh, the Republican Party is much more conservative in the pundit sets of the word, and the Democratic Party is much more liberal in the way that pundits and journalists write about it and then so the question is why does that happen because you'd think there's this great opportunity for either party now to, to move to be more inclusive to move toward the center this large group of, of independents large group of moderates there's some overlap there why wouldn't one part why would they separate like that it would seem everything would push them toward moving toward the middle and uh, and, and then and dominating
1: well, yes, that's, uh, as you well know, uh, one of the traditional models in political science, political economy, is the median voter model that says, get to the median. That's the winning position. Yeah. comes from a hoteling, um, trying to yes, put a link yes. up to that. That's right, uh, about a 100 years ago, practically. Yeah. And uh, But the fact is, uh, well, take, take a look at an example from the last uh, uh, election. Many people believe that John Huntsman could have beaten Barack Obama, but there was no way in hell that John Huntsman was going to get nominated in the Republican primaries and what we have now is a more complicated electoral system which is much more participatory than it was a generation ago the uh, the people who met in the smoke-filled rooms had one goal in mind which was to nominate a winner power. because with yeah. <laughs> with winning came power and with power came lots of good things uh public goods like legislation but also private goods like patronage and contracts et cetera but we now have a much more participatory system in which ideology is really the driving force and these people go out and they work in primaries and they give money and they they basically you know, haul the candidates to the extremes. I I have some data in this article that you'll remember that uh, the Republican primary contest this year, which pe- people <laughs> they they frankly were just sort of funny. We had a different candidate leading every week, and um, the question is when will we come to a decision? And people didn't realize what small numbers of people were driving the instability of this process. That the night that Rick Santorum became the contender, the uh, the alternative to Mitt Romney by winning three contests. Well, in Minnesota, one out of every 100 eligible voters turned out of the Minnesota caucus at Centorum 1. In Colorado, two of every 100 voters turned out in the caucus at uh, Centorum 1. In the Missouri uh, beauty contest primary, seven out of every 100 um, Missouri voters, eligible voters, turned out. So very tiny, tiny slices of the most extreme the most committed uh... issue activists are driving the process and it's basically um you know that's why we saw totally wittable Senate seats be thrown away by by very uh, just outrageous uh, comments made by some of the Republican candidates in these races and so they're being nominated not by uh, professional politicians who want to win and have a good sense of the public, but by true believers. Um, the political science term we always use is wing nuts, uh, basically the people on the wings of the two parties who in, have a disproportionate influence on what candidates are presented to the electorate.
0: And yet The Republicans ended up choosing, at least on paper and his historical behavior, the most liberal candidate. They did not pick Rick Santorum. They did not pick Michelle Bachman. They did not pick Rick Perry. They picked this liberalish Massachusetts Republican who, instead of running toward the center – and I guess maybe this is a way of of making your point – tried to run to the right – I guess to get that nomination, and then found himself in a very relatively unattractive position when it tam- came time for the um, for the general election.
1: That's correct. I think even if they they managed to be saved from themselves, It's happened to McCain also in the previous uh, nomination contest. You recall that uh, every faction of the Republican Party had a had a candidate in two thousand eight, and McCain was really preferred by no one and yet he sort of ended up as the candidate so they managed to somehow find the best candidate to have but that candidate is in turn pulled too far away from the the candidate's uh, background that mccain of course had a reputation as a maverick as a reasonable person on a lot of issues as a more moderate person but he was pulled too far to the right in his uh... his campaign he wouldn't have won anyway i mean given the problems of the bush uh... administration and bush's approval ratings in 2008 i don't think there was a way the republicans could have won that election but in 2012, uh, I think Romney was the, the best candidate they had, at least the ones who got into the race. There were a number of potentially strong candidates who, for whatever reason, uh, didn't make the run. But uh, by the same token, I think had he been able to run, had he been able to take credit for uh, the Massachusetts health care plan, had he been rather than have to try to defend it, I mean, it's still controversial to take credit for it, but nevertheless, it. It cast him as a flip-flopper and somebody who had gone back on his own ideas and achievements. I just think a lot of, uh, a lot of problems that he, 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 couldn't run on his real strength, which was a non-ideological, fiscally conservative, fiscally prudent, good manager. Uh, he had to run on a lot of other, yes, pragmatists who would sort of make deals and sort of start us back out of the way this cycle of debt and, and, uh, deficits we're in. And so he was unable to run on to his strengths. He had to run to, to using some weaker dimensions.
0: But that, that point holds for the presidency. It's How do you explain the fact that there's no uh, Scoop Jackson in the Democratic Party and no Nelson Rockefeller in the Republican Party anymore? These more liberal governors, senators, although Chris Christie would be an exception there, but certainly at the, in the, the national level, the House and the Senate, why, why, is, why is there no home for, for liberal uh, Republicans or conservative Democrats there? Uh, it's the activists.
1: I mean, all the Tea Party has gotten all the attention in recent years, but you think of the Daily Coast crowd, and the Democratic Party, that in all these primaries we're talking about, in House primaries, the turnout rates are almost always in the single digits. And so we're talking about small groups of committed activists who have vetoes over the people who get nominated in the House races. Where were Senate they before? Races,
0: Where were they in 1970?
1: Uh, um, they, were, they just weren't as – well, the parties hadn't sorted out as much. See, this is the other thing I was just talking about, party sorting. In in 1970, the Democratic electorate in Mississippi would have been really different from the Democratic electorate in, in Massachusetts, and Republicans take the same thing, New York versus, say, Nebraska. But what's happened is basically the parties are now pretty much homogeneous across the country. So if you're a Democrat, it uh, doesn't matter where you are; your primary constituency is going to be the public employees unions. It's going to be the pro-choice uh, groups, the uh, anti-gun groups, the various kinds of liberal cause groups. If you're a Republican, your base, your primaries are going to be the taxpayer groups, the various kinds of conservative um, cause groups like the pro-life group. And so it doesn't really matter where you come from; you're basically going to be pulled to the to the various to the left as we define it today in the Democratic primaries and to the right in the Republican primaries. Look at what's happened to senators like Bennett and Lugar. I mean just people who simply would not have been vulnerable in 1970 who are now vulnerable to small groups of activists uh, today.
0: I just wonder how much of it's technology and the fact that people pay attention at the national level and have the time to pay attention generally. I mean you know, there have always been activists. It's just I think people play politics as – it's it's one of our most popular national sports. <laughs> it's um, we just call it politics, but but there's a lot of fandom fan base uh, on, on both sides of the ideological and political and partisan spectrum. And, well, uh, only
1: at the only at the upper levels. Um, the fact is, the the surveys show that the American public as a whole is, if anything, less well informed than it was a generation ago. Uh, for example, fewer people can name their member of Congress today than they could 30 years ago. Um, that that <laughs> you're absolutely right that's, that there are no, far that's, more.
0: That's Google's fault. They've made us stupid. That's not <laughs> yeah. That's a
1: joke. That's a joke. I'm a skeptic about that. No, No, it's true. I mean, there are far more sources of information today, but there are also far more ways to evade, uh, to avoid being subjected to those sources. And so far, it looks like the latter has been winning out over the former. Uh, I mean, just think about the conventions. These used to be... gavel-to-gavel coverage on all three network channels. And now you get just sort of some of the high points and then you shift away. And most people can choose to go back to Espen or to go to uh, Showtime or HBO and not have to do it at all. I, I remember just during the, the uh, hearing, a, a, I mean, again, to get a, the anecdotal, level, my wife is a retired teacher. And she went out to lunch right after the conventions with uh, several of her retired teacher friends. So these are, these are women with master's degrees and they've had professionals. And it turned out no one else at the table had looked at a single hour at the convention that, that she was the only one and she's married to a political science professor so she was subjected thing. to this yeah, but thing. Uh, yeah <laughs> but and so if, if people like that aren't watching it and aren't paying any attention then you know it's just um, it's a it's a strange situation we're in we're, we're overwhelmed with uh, drowning in information and yet we somehow avoid being touched by it
0: yeah well we pick and choose what interests us uh, and of course there's a lot of reasons for not paying attention to the convention. That they're, you know, they're highly scripted. They're taking some of the fun out of them, so they're a little less interesting. it Feels like. Let's go to the um, the aftermath of 2008, where the some of this uh, instability started to to show itself. So Obama wins with a very large uh, margin, as you point. Out, I think second only to Reagan in what was the what was the category?
1: Party replacement elections. Where one party turns out the other party
0: of, in the White House.
1: Yes. Uh-huh. So he was. Election.
0: He had a seven point two. Was
1: it? Yeah. It was. Yeah. It was. It was seven. It was. I mean, it, uh, things like Roosevelt landslides are extremely unusual in American history. I mean, Eisenhower was about ten. Reagan was a little less than that, and Nine. Obama came in right after them. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So what happened? A good win. What happened? So they had a big had a big win. Democrats looked like they were riding high. They were riding high. What went wrong?
1: Well, I think um, we're in an era when uh, this just happens. The parties overreach, um, whether it's because they think control is so fleeting, we got to make hay while the sunshine, so to speak, or because they just uh, they talk only to each other like-minded people and they're convinced that there's a new world. We now have a, a permanent liberal majority, or whatever the reason. But Democrats tend to build their coalitions from the left. Republicans tend to do theirs from the right. And you got enough, get enough of the center to win. But then if you govern in a way that alienates the center once you get in office, uh, then you lose that in the midterm. And that's what's happened, I think, both to Bush after 2004 and to Obama after 2008. That, um, there, there are two things. One is, uh, Obama, he was, basically people did not have a good, imp- a, a clear impression of Obama when they elected him. They thought he was different. They thought he was not Bush. Uh, and so, uh, but as many people they were right thought Obama that. was a, Yes, they, were. <laughs> they nailed that <laughs> They one. were very right. Yeah. yeah, But they thought they were as likely to think he was a moderate as to think he was a liberal. Well, after about a year, they were clear that elected a liberal, uh, having looked at the agenda. And uh, health care was a serious problem that all the data we've looked at suggests that health care, the vote, pushing it through the, uh, the Congress was probably the difference between maintaining a democratic majority or losing a democratic majority And it wasn't just the radicalness of the position. I mean, people have argued that if you go back to what Nixon proposed, it was equally liberal. Or if you go back to the Southern Democratic Republican alternative to Hillary Care in 1993 and 4, that was uh, equally liberal. It was also the priorities. It was what are these people worrying about uh, cap-and-trade and health care and stuff like that when we're dying? You know, our houses are being foreclosed on, we're out of work, we have no money, that essentially the American public poll after poll after poll shows. It's the economy, and instead, what we're seeming to, seeming to get is a, a list of democratic ideological ideas, uh, hobby horses. Not to say issues like this aren't important, but just to say they weren't the priorities of the American public. And so, I think that's what the 2010 uh, election showed. Uh, damn it, get get working on the things we think are important, and, and get off of this um, this stuff you're working on.
0: Now, what's what's the evidence that that's the case? And I, I know you have some because for some listeners out there, you might think, well, that just that just sounds like. Cheap talk. It's easy to say, "Oh, they overreached. They were too liberal." What's the evidence that that actually made a difference?
1: If you well, we uh, we we basically tortured the the data. We uh, uh, several colleagues and I uh, got together. We took the health care vote. And we simply plugged into the standard kind of models we used to predict whether people win or lose, that is, they include their party affiliation, their ideological position, and so forth and we find found that the health care vote basically was the difference between winning and losing unless you were in the most uh, most clearly Obama districts districts that voted most strongly for Obama, in particular, the people who got wiped out in in two thousand and ten were what we call the McCain Democrats, their democratic House members. Who were elected from districts that voted for Obama or voted for um, excuse me, um, uh, McCain in uh, in 2008? So their their districts voted for Democrats for the House, but Republican for President, and that group took they basically three quarters of them got wiped out. If, and it was always the case if they voted for either cap and trade or health care, they lost. The only ones who managed to survive—about half of them did—were those who bucked the party and went, went, uh, voted against both those issues. And so, I mean, it's just there statistically um, that if you if you voted on the uh, the Democratic side on these issues, you lost the election. And there were enough of these people that it would have been just neck and neck. They, they—I think they needed something like. 38 seats to hold their majority they lost 63 um so i mean it they would have just been able to just about uh be tied if they had released these people and let them all vote wrong of course then the issues would have gone down and that's another story too these counterfactuals never are completely convincing but um but anyway that's the you that's, say you, know, when you say
0: the, the issues would have gone i mean they would have lost they, the vote the bills wouldn't have passed
1: yeah exactly you now you have to go back and say well what if health care had fallen just not gone through then of course obama's his approval ratings, what would happen to them? We don't know. What he have looked ineffectual? So, I mean, there's another tri- – if you think about the game tree, there's another branch. We're not going down here. But certainly if you just say the way things played out, that the people who voted against Obamacare um, survived 50-50. The people who voted for it all went down, these, these McCain Democrats. Uh, that's clearly the
0: case. Now, what role did the independent vote play in that 2010 outcome? cuz there's a, there's the impression impression i get and I, it's probably from talking to Dave brady <laughs> uh who talks to you so you i maybe you're going to tell me the same thing but my impression is that is that republicans pretty reliably vote republican them self-identified self-identified democrats vote democrat and then so it's just a fight over the moderates which again by the way raises the question of why they don't go more moderate they they we hear constantly about how oh they had you know Obama had to oppose Keystone because the pipeline, because he had to play to his base, or um, you know, Bush had to do X, Y, Z to play to his base. But the bases, they're in there, they're 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 for you anyway. Is it just a question of turnout that you're trying to make sure? Why? why? Yeah, it's a question. Go ahead. Uh huh.
1: Yeah, it's a question of turnout and enthusiasm and getting people out. Um, but yes, the independents have been swinging massively in recent elections. I think it was 17 points against the Republicans in 2006 and 18 points against the Democrats in 2010. So a net 35 point swing, uh, in a four year period. And the, the independents, if you go back and look at presidential approval ratings, they had bailed on Obama by the, um, by the fall, by September of 2009. It is the independents had gone to him in the 2008 election, but then having watched the first through nine months, of the administration were already saying this is really not what we voted for, and that just simply forecast the the massive swing uh, they they turned in later a year later in the 2010 election. Uh, so they are the wild card out there. But the problem is uh, basically they don't vote in the party primaries. Uh, they, right. they they and and the fact of the, the thing is uh, is as, as strange as it might seem to pragmatic people like most of us, uh, there are people out there who would rather lose with their. Can- candidate than win with a moderate. And, I mean, we were talking to the, um, for the California Republican chairman a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying that's one of the difficulties he has. There are several winnable assembly races where he's facing primary constituencies that say we would rather lose with a pro-life guy than win with somebody who's waffling on this issue. And uh, how do you reason with people like that? That, But that's the case, the, the base of both parties.
0: Well, that's just so interesting, you know, in general, because... You no know, part of part of the fun of of being a, a fan of sports is that you don't just get to root for your team you get to root against other teams so uh, you know this is a good uh this is a good as a Celtics fan this is a good year for me cuz the Lakers are not going to win the NBA championship <laughs> enjoying every minute of it right so yeah so you you, you know i don't want one of my soggy namby pamby uh, guys to to win for quote my party i want one of the real true true believers and if i and if that person loses well that's okay i can hate the guy who wins that you know Mm
1: -hmm. yep yep afraid so
0: so is is it is it accurate then to say you know we started off talking about instability and that there's a lot of instability at the national level but not so much in the electorate it seems that that independent vote is pretty unstable
1: yes yes it is now bear in mind they don 't vote as frequently as partisans do, and so they're even though they are thirty five to forty percent of the population, they are a much smaller proportion of the electorate than that. But uh, but yeah, they hold the key, and especially in an era when both the Republicans and the Democrats, or neither one of them, is a majority when they are definite pluralities, that yeah, uh, and I mean that's the case not just in uh, in nationally, but you look at a lot of the states. The Independents are actually they outnumber Democrats, and I believe Massachusetts, Connecticut, most of New England, actually. Uh, in California, the story of the Republican Party, the idea that. Uh, Pete Wilson did them in by, what is it, Prop 187 by alienating Mexicans. That's really only a small part of the story. The larger part of the story is they get, they get totally hosed among the declined states who are larger than ever proportion of the population. They get hosed among the moderates in the electorate that the Republican Party in California has just positioned itself to be unacceptable to a big part of middle California.
0: Now, what about the? It's uh, just a side note because I'm interested in. It came up recently in a podcast I did with an interview I did with Arnold Kling. Are do we have any evidence about the accuracy of how informed, uh, accurately informed, uh, Republicans, Democrats, and Independents are? are? Are Independents less informed, or are they less biased, uh, or neither? Uh,
1: both. That uh, all the survey data shows independents are less uh, well, basically, there's two kinds of independents the le- leaning independents and the true independents. And true independents are basically uninformed. Leaning independents are more informed, but not as informed as strong partisans. The strongest partisans are more informed than independents. But the strong partisans are also malinformed, is what <laughs> I would say. They believe, thing- they believe things that aren't true. Right. That the surveys show, for example, that strong Democrats believe that inflation didn't decline under Reagan. <laughs> These things are totally wrong, and uh, and and the strongest Republicans believe that weapons of mass destruction were found. Or uh, excuse me, yes, were found yeah. uh, under it's Bush. Comfort- it's comforting. Yes, it's, it's comforting. It's totally wrong, uh, but it's called motivated reasoning by the people who study political psychology, this sort of thing, that, that I, I agree on. They will give you more correct answers on a knowledge test, but they also believe things that are not correct. And, um, so, and, and the electorate as a whole, I, we, this is a, l- a little bit of a digression, but we saw a paper presented yesterday on taxes. And it was very interesting that, uh, the population, according to these surveys that had been done, does think we should have more taxes on the rich. But then, when you ask them uh, what are the rich actually paying, they underestimate, of course, uh, what the rich are currently paying. And what's interesting is they think that the rich should be paying less than they currently are. But you ask them what is a fair tax to pay for various income brackets, they come in with figures that are actually below what the rich, are, what the people in those brackets are actually paying. So here is a case of people being uninformed and malinformed at the same time.
0: Now let's turn to 2010. Uh, the Republicans have this incredible success at the. With, in the House in, in 2010, and they just assume that in 2012, they're going to expand that and take the presidency as well. What went wrong for the Republicans? Oh, well,
1: I think it was um, – I know it's it a long a list, and,
0: and we don't have yeah. – we, yeah. we don't have two or three hours, yeah. but do yeah. the best you can.
1: uh-huh. Okay, well, it was a mis- it was, a- it's always a mistake to read uh, a trend into one election. And I think the, the 2010 indicated clearly, uh, the electorate was unhappy with what it'd seen, uh, for the previous two years. Uh, it was a signal to change course. Um, the economy didn't get any worse, basically. Uh, the, the economic forecasting models always had the election in doubt that, uh, it was, it was is you know we were in this sort of gray zone between where people were had been defeated in the past and people were reelected in the past, and so it wasn't clear the economy and, and the trends were they were no longer downward at least I think we can say that, and um, so I mean the election was close it wasn't uh, wasn't by any means a a runaway in either party I think had the I think the Republicans hurt themselves with the um, the primary contests I think some of the uh, the races that were um, some of the Murdoch race and the was the other race uh, where they threw away sin. I think just the image of the party as being uh, wacko, I think, sort of hurt them uh, and does continue to hurt them. Um, but, I, I mean, it's it wasn't – I don't think we need to waste a whole lot of time uh, or spend a whole lot of time thinking about what went wrong. It could have gone either way. Um, I think most political scientists before the fact thought that would have hesitated to vote much on either way, and it went toward the Democrats. And I think we're facing a very uncertain future as well in 2016.
0: But the standard view, which you argue against a little bit in this paper, the standard view is the Republicans Let's – let's – Let's talk about two kinds of um, problems Republicans have. One is the image of the wacko, outrageous thing, things some candidate not ready for prime time somehow finds themselves the nominee because of forces you identified earlier, and they say something that's appalling, and it and it hurts other Republicans besides themselves. The other is that the Republicans staked out certain positions that are not outrageous or wacko, but they're not very popular. And one, for example, which we've seen in recent months – republicans trying to change their image on is immigration so republicans have worry that this that the hispanic vote which is a growing very you know rapidly growing part of the electorate that has that they've that they've written been written off The republicans have been written off and that and that and the hispanics feel like that they've been written off so republicans in the last few months you know the marco rubio and others have been trying to show that they're they're not really anti-immigration they're not so anti-hispanic um but you point out that's not so obviously that's not so it's not their, necessarily their biggest problem it no is, it is a problem it, though correct it
1: is a problem it is a problem certainly I, I think some years ago david brooks commented there's a there's an interpretation immediately after the election that gets picked up by all the media types and it has to have one uh, thing in common, which <laughs> well, it's almost invariably really wrong. And I think the the uh, right after the uh, the election, the storyline was that the Republicans are doomed because of demographics. And
0: they're they're and too mean. They're too mean. That's that was the, the other piece. But yeah, were... it's,
1: it's yeah, the, but because the uh, because um, because gays and friendliness toward gays, and because immigrants, and because single women, etc. There are these various kinds of uh, constituencies that are in the growing growing in size and are invariably going to make the Republicans a minority party. Well, the first thing is, uh, demography is important, but it's not destiny. And presumably somebody, uh, when things like this are noticed, as they are in the case of immigration, people begin to recalculate and they reposition the party. And it can take a long time. And basically, the Democratic Party cracked up between 68 and 72. It took Bill Clinton uh, 20 years, I mean, took somebody like Clinton 20 years to pull them back into the mainstream and become competitive again. so I mean, it may take the Republicans a while, but certainly they're working on uh, on uh, immigration. But by the same token, I think what I pointed out in this article that the uh, the more interesting thing I thought was not just that the proportion of Hispanics was up and the proportion of whites were down. But the um, there were probably when you look at turnout as a whole, it dropped. Turnout had been increasing in recent elections, but turnout there were six million more eligible voters this time around, and turnout actually dropped. Um, Obama's margin was down four points from the previous time. Romney actually, um, although he did well proportionally among whites, the white turnout dropped by several million, maybe four to five million voters. So whatever they were selling didn't even play that well among whites this time. So it wasn't just a question of being more Latinos in the electorate. It was a question, of, I think, the whole Republican brand and there you get into I mean once you start arguing this in political circles there's going to be 20 factors uh, trotted out but I think certainly the the social conservative uh, branch uh, the the branch of conservatism the social conservatives has hurt them increasingly in recent years partly because the country is just going another direction the the younger generation those of us in college uh, teaching in college just know that um, basically when it comes to issues like homosexuality uh, anything having to do with sex basically um, the old traditional morality is gone I mean it's just the younger generation, they're not immoral. They just have different views on things. And it's even, I was reading, reading some recent Gallup data, it's even occurring among older people that basically they are they know gays, they have relatives, nephews, et cetera, who are gay. And you're even seeing not just not just the case of a generational effect here, but an aging effect, that even among in cohorts of a certain age, people are getting more open-minded on these things. And so to the extent the Republicans are tied with people who – Talk about no abortion under any circumstances they're opposed to gay marriage, um, they make stupid comments on rape etc that 's just going to hurt. Um, they also, I mean, I think you, you touched on something. There is a uh, an edge to some Republican candidates that comes across as meanness. It's not just that uh, we think these programs are ineffective, it's we think the people on them somehow uh, should be the objects of moral opprobrium, and people sense that. And I think people are, are amenable. They're, they're willing to listen to arguments that programs are ineffective, that they may be counterproductive in many cases, but not necessarily that uh, we want to punish people uh, who who are, who are in these programs today. So, I mean, we could go on for, oh, as you say, a long time, but I, I think there are a number of things, and there's no single magic bullet that the Republicans could put in the gun and make their problems go away. But a lot of them out there aren't, aren't helping, put it that way.
0: Of course, as you say, one election doesn't make a trend, and I, I, there is an inevitable um, introspection that takes place after a defeat it seems to me often to be an an overreaction uh because mm-hmm. as yes. you point out often the quote obvious thing that went wrong isn't even the thing that went wrong let alone whether you can fix it or not you know as you say it t- can take decades uh you know it's hard for people to remember because they weren't alive but you know the republicans used to be the party of african americans the way that the democrats are today and it eventually that changed and things things do change it's hard to hard to remember that yes so coming back to this issue now of of this instability. So we've got this this instability it's sometimes called gridlock when when a particular form of of this takes place when there's divided government in terms of which party owns has control of which branch. But is it important is gridlock important? I mean people it's it's a negative word um but is it really a bad thing? Does it make it more importantly does it make a difference do you, do you do you think if you looked at the data uh if you had good data in 1892 and versus today and the times around it do you think these these stretches where there's uh lots of changes over which party is in charge of which branch of government do you think that would show up in the form of some observable outcome that was different other than it's nice to talk about it's interesting Again, it's sort of an inside baseball kind of thing. Was it, does it matter? People talk um, about it, but does it really matter? Basically, it's controversial
1: that there there are a number of studies. Uh, do unified governments produce more legislation than divided governments? And the answer is no. Uh, now, some people argue that, well, maybe in years of divided government, more legislation is necessary. Uh, that's not at all clear to me because um, it could be that... Divide government means there is no consensus, and so it's wrong to legislate in those circumstances. But so, and if we go back to the late nineteenth century, I'm always struck by the fact that they managed to pass the Interstate Commerce Act, the Sherman Antitrust Act. They did some really big things back then during this period of tremendous instability. And so, I, and even now, you look at the sequester. The world is going to come to an end because of the sequester. Well. What happened?
0: <laughs> I can't remember anything. Can you? I'm still here. Uh, yeah, right. And, and my house is, still is parking unfor- unfortunately, my house is still worth a lot of money. <laughs> I paid a lot for it and it's still worth I'd love for my house in suburban Washington, D.C. to plummet because the demand for government goes down. But, you know, I can only dream.
1: <laughs> can only dream, right. So, uh, no, I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, I, th- I think there is a clear sort of a biased point of view in the people who who bemoan gridlock in the sense of they want a a big government that acts and does things. And if you're sort of on the other side of that politically, uh, gridlock is not such a bad thing, especially when, you know, I mean, it's one thing if you have, you know, huge majorities, and I I know you're going to bring up gun control and we can talk about that, but but nevertheless, on big things, what are we going to do about Social Security and the tax system, et cetera? I don't think there's a consensus out there, Um, and among even among the elites, there's there's no consensus to lead, try to lead the population any any way. So I'm not sure that sort of just simply muddling along until something things
0: clarify isn't the best course of events right now. What should I have asked you about gun control?
1: Well, I was, I was going to say, when you have clear majorities, and uh, and like there's, the political class has been going crazy about how the fact you have 80 to 90 percent majorities in favor of, uh, of uh, say, background checks, and certainly that's true. I mean, with we, political scientists, I can remember the first political science course I took in 1964, them using gun control as the example of an intense major, intense minority, that there's something traditionally called the, the problem of the, uh, intensity in democratic politics, small. Democratic and the idea is you know political equality demands all votes be weighted equally but is is it really not just fair but is it really prudent if you have an apathetic majority, say 50% plus one, opposed to an intense minority of 40 50% minus one, uh, is it fair the apathetic majority should rule uh, threatening, I mean, just not, you, you can't wait the votes, but essentially that's what's politically happening and threatening the health of the system, civil war, etc. Those were the kind of dimensions of the conflict and gun control is this way. And the um, uh, there's, a, there's a Pew poll that unfortunately didn't get more publicity than it should have. But the, the, you, know, you remember when Obama was elected, his victory speech, and again in uh, his inaugural address, uh, what did he emphasize? He said, all right, we're going to do something about global warming. We're going to do something about, uh, about immigration. We're going to do something about gay marriage. We're going to strengthen gun laws. Well, the Pew poll, which was taken in January um, uh, this year, uh, asked people, what do you think the top priorities of the president and Congress should be in the coming year. And they gave them 21 choices. These are usually picked through focus groups. And of the 21 choices, um, let's see, immigration came in number 17th in priority. Gun laws came in number 18th in priority. And global warming came in number 21 out of 21 And so, I mean, there's a total disconnect between what the Washington establishment thinks of as the important issues facing the country and what the population as a whole does. Now, you want to know what the top ones were? Economy, jobs, deficits, social security, education, Medicare, healthcare costs, the poor and the needy, crime, environment, taxes, energy, et cetera, et cetera, until you get down to immigration number 17. So, um, so i mean the fact is you have majorities saying for strengthening gun laws that that's certainly true but people don't care that's the basic funny they say well it's and i don't back care you very much
0: I, they care they very don't much. care
1: very much yeah i mean it's it's essentially no one is going to or very few people are going to vote against a a member of congress or the who who doesn't support the gun control bill, whereas the minority on the other side are all, they, they will, in fact, vote against somebody who supports it. I may have garbled that answer there. But, um, but it, so I mean, you can't just look at public opinion data like this and say, well, the, the majority is being thwarted. The fact is, if the majority really cared, it wouldn't be thwarted and members of Congress understand that. So we, we need to look at public opinion data with some sense of what's important to people as well as just what the division of opinion on it. same thing on spending items. We we always ask these, do you think spending on any these programs should be increased, decreased, or kept the same? And the only thing people ever want to cut is um, is foreign aid, welfare, and the space program. Everything else they want to increase. But then if you ask them, well, what, what would you like to... You know, yeah. I mean, it's true. I mean, yeah. it's really... And then what true. do you want yeah, your taxes really. to be... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. No, exactly. When you start asking them how much, I remember the, some people in the business school here did a, a study of during the healthcare care fight and how much would people be willing to pay for um, for universal access. Everybody says, that's a good idea. Yeah, of course, everybody should have insurance. And I think they lost the majority. It's something like 50 bucks a year for a family. That everybody's willing to do says it's good as long as it's cheap. But if you say, "Well, you, it's going to cost you 100 bucks," you say, "Well, no, I guess we can do without universal access." So they wouldn't pay. They wouldn't
0: pay a hundred dollars for other people to have uh, yeah, universal exactly. access. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, the healthcare fight was. I mean, it, it was very interesting in the sense that. Um, basically about one-third of the people, first of all health care wasn't considered that huge an issue, but about, of the people who thought it was a big issue, one-third of it was about access and two-thirds of it was about costs. Now the fact though was the people who were concerned about access were nearly all in the Democratic base. So that's why you saw this being basically an access bill and not a cost bill. And so even though – even sort of I mentioned earlier, it wasn't one of the top priorities, but even the way they went about it was actually not the way people really who are concerned about it actually felt the problem,
0: uh, where the problem existed. So do you want to opine on it, – it, you mentioned it already but a little bit. Uh, do you want to say anything about what you think is coming down the road for politics in the next election and then the one after in 2016? 14 no. and 16. Uh, it's good to get yeah, the answer.
1: Right. Well, for, well 14, uh, 14, I think – we are looking at again Um the the democrats need i believe 17 seats to take back the house it's probably doubtful without some terrible misstep or some exogenous shock uh, because it's uh, it. Things are not going well for Obama now. Things generally sort of begin to deteriorate in the second term of presidency. And so I think the Democrats' chance of taking the House are pretty minimal. In fact, the the, the, the Republicans seem to have a structural advantage in the House now, that it's always been the case that, um, that um, r- rural votes are basically—rural districts or suburban districts are less— uh, less homogeneous than urban districts. And so the Democrats waste a lot of votes you know, running up big majorities in urban districts, especially in minority districts. And now that the South has gone from Re- Democrats to Republicans, Republicans just have more efficient districts. They win by 60% rather than 70%. And so uh, they, they do have a structural advantage in the House. Now the Senate, we could look at that and say, boy, the Republicans really ought to be able to take the Senate. But everybody said that the last two cycles around and they found a way to blow it. Uh, so I don't know whether uh, what the chance of the Republicans doing it next time or not? Now, in terms of 2016, anything goes. Uh, one of my favorite anecdotes is in in after the 1974 election, um, the Gallup uh, organization decided it was about time to start uh, thinking about their trial heat polls for two years later. And you know, if the election were held today, would you vote for so and so or so and so? And they canvassed Democratic Party officials, and they came up with a list of 34 names of potential Democratic candidates for 1976. And one name that was not on the list of thirty-four was Jimmy Carter. So, he would have uh, been
0: thirty-fifth. They just, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: So I mean, the idea now—well, it's going to be certainly Hillary on the Democratic side, going to be one of these three or four people: Cruz, Rubio, Bush, uh, Christie, on the Republican side. Well, yeah, it sort of looks like that now. But I wouldn't be surprised if if there were somebody else emerged who nobody is talking about now. It's it's just too far ahead to um, really speculate. Yeah,
0: I remember when um, when Obamacare was put on the table. And Romney did not come out against it, partly for whatever reason, maybe because it was so much like what he had proposed in Massachusetts. Maybe he thought it was a great law. Maybe he didn't want to talk about it. Who knows? But he didn't come out against it. I thought, that's it. He's done. He has no chance. Here's his chance to repudiate what he did, say – this I made a mistake in Massachusetts. It's a mistake to do it at the national I thought that way he'd get the nomination. And if he didn't do it, I thought he had no chance. Well, I'm, I'm an idiot. I, don't, I was clearly I was clearly wrong, as I often am about politics. Yeah. So well, we'll we'll see. I'll talk to you in uh, mm-hmm. in two years. We'll have a yeah, better, better we'll idea what's going two on. Two years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's close by talking about uh, red states and blue states, which is another divisive. Uh, or divide that we hear about sometimes—that there are these uh, red states, there are these blue states—and culturally, we're so different. And in your book, you um, you point out it's not quite that straightforward.
1: No, in fact, the, the distributions of opinion in red state and blue states are more, uh, more similar than I think anyone believes that, uh, people tend to stereotype and they think of, well, a blue state is some Manhattan or San Francisco and a red state is, uh, some small town in Texas or Mississippi. And in fact, it's just a lot more, uh, more nuanced than that. I have a map I like, um, that is not just red or blue depending on whether you won the state by one vote but it rather shades the entire state on the base of strong partisans, independents, et cetera. And the whole country, with a few exceptions, pockets here and there, looks pink and purple and a much more nuanced view. And I think it's a mistake to say there's only like seven, eight states in the country that are really competitive. And the right candidates can put a lot more areas into play. Uh, like for example, I think uh, Christie, if nothing else, would sort of scramble the map that uh that he would get a look in places where a republican ordinary doesn't get a look and might be in trouble in areas where a Republican normally has a, an easy chance of it so um it's as long as we sort of have a a northern liberal on the uh, on the democratic side and a southern conservative on the Republican side, things are going to look pretty stable. but if we break out of that mold and have some non standard candidates, then I think things will shake up.
0: As a closing question, um, total shift of gears, what do you think is the most interesting questions in political science that we don't – we can't answer right now? We don't have survey data. We don't have a good understanding of – where do you think the intellectual action is in your field coming, coming forward? Oh well, I mean, if,
1: if you want to talk about purely academic, uh, <laughs> this is really off the wall. Uh, there's research going on uh, about biological and genetic bases of political attitudes and behavior, and there's one claim, for example, based on twin studies, that about half of your ideology is inherited from your parents—that it's in your genes.
0: Not in and your, so not think, in your, not in what they watched on the on, not what they watch yeah. Fox or CNN. But right. Uh, well, what they whether they watch
1: Fox or CNN is based on their genes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So I mean, from a purely academic standpoint, uh, there are, there are lines of research now that would have been well, first of all, totally politically politically incorrect, unacceptable uh, forty years ago, but also just uh, just really mind-boggling. That people are doing brainwave stuff and everything. So I mean, that's sort of the physical, biological, et cetera side of things is where lots of ferment is
0: occurring. I think that's just too much NSF money. No. Mm. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> who's, paying for, who's paying for that? Who's paying for those? I, those I, well, I think NIH
1: and stuff like that. Yeah. Now, NSF, as you know, is not simply not funding now political science, stuff that isn't related to national security or economic growth. That, uh, so, I mean, it's, they have to go to other funding sources, and NIH has a lot of money.
0: Yeah. Uh, How about more traditional, uh, less radical stuff? What's, uh, <laughs> what, what do you think is interesting that's going on in the field?
1: um frankly I, I guess this marks me as an old dried up uh, scholar i was going to use a term that's not politically uh but anyway um i think not a lot at the moment um there's there's a, a great deal of work on methodology well i, I should say i'm confining my remarks here to the study of American politics and uh, you know, certainly in international relations, this wouldn't necessarily be the case. But there is a great deal of emphasis on advanced statistical methods, on modeling, on, um, uh, on their geo- geological stuff, or ge- no, excuse me, geographic stuff that we're now able to sort of map out congressional districts to the square foot and so forth. And so I, I find a lot of work in younger scholars' um, uh, being less concerned with bigger questions and more with how to answer smaller questions or even just how to answer any question. And so I think, you know, basically the pendulum has swung a little too far in that direction. And we saw this in economics, you know, probably, what, 10, 20 years ago, everything had gone to the game theory, et cetera. So now we're seeing a big swing back toward empirical work and uh, and, and political economy. And I, I think probably the pendulum will swing again. But in talking to journal editors, I, I sort of get this sense that you know, there's nobody's doing – interesting big arguments at the moment that it's sort of too much small stuff.
0: Well, we have the same problem in economics. I think the problem is data. There's too much data. Mm. Too much (laughs) data, yeah. It's ironic. We have all this, you say, to the square foot, it makes it easier to run more interesting statistical techniques. I'm not sure we're we're learning more, though, but we certainly have fancier tools to play with.
1: No, that's right. If you had asked that question to a lot of younger scholars, you would have said big data. That's what the interesting thing is, but I just don't have much confidence that that's going to really produce a lot
0: of intellectually interesting work. My guest today has been Morris Vierino. thanks for being part of EconTalk. You're very welcome. Glad to be there. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty.